Welcome to another episode of The Brevity Code. Today I have a special guest I'm really excited to share with you guys. His name is Bill Burke, and he's an American climbing hero and legend. And I think I'm going to keep the intro short today and just tell you that what this guy's been able to do at the point in his life in which he has started his endeavors is really remarkable, and it just shows you that age is just a number. This episode of Brevity Code is sponsored by Uncharted Supply Co. You guys have heard the podcast, hopefully you have, with my good friend Christian Shaw from Uncharted Supply Co. He's got a great story, so if you haven't listened to that one, check it out. But this is a spot for his brand, which I really believe in his product. You know I don't hawk stuff that I wouldn't back myself. So Uncharted Supply Co., the world is changing. Statistically, emergency situations are on the rise like no other time in history. Overpopulation, natural disasters, even terrorism are real daily concerns for many of you. Not to mention the daily bumps and bruises that come with the active lives that many of us lead. And while you may think you need a bunker and a 25-year food supply, the reality is 95% of all emergency situations from 9-11 to a car wreck are resolved within 72 hours. You simply need the right tools and hand to navigate the first and most critical 72 hours after an emergency. With this in mind, Uncharted Supply Co. developed the 72. Uncharted's founder, Christian, who was actually a guest on my podcast, right, as we mentioned, he teamed up with and interviewed a bunch of special forces guys, medical professionals, mountain guides, and so on, and asked them one simple question. What would you give your family in an emergency if you weren't there to protect them? Their answers helped form the 72, which is 35 high-quality items all organized with easy-to-understand instructions for even the most novice among us. Guys, go buy one. Go buy one for your spouses. Go put one in your house. It's how much is your life worth? Enough said. Uncharted Supply Co. UnchartedSupplyCo.com. Guys, use Brevity Code at checkout for $35 off again at Uncharted Supply Co. On the Brevity Code podcast, we'll explore a wide range of topics from the very people that give form and color to our world. We'll hear from artists, brand builders, industry leaders, pro athletes, fitness and endurance coaches, philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and many others. Through their actions, they enrich us with their vision, creativity, and bravery. Our guests have all been successful by flying in the face of conventional wisdom. We'll learn from them the ways in which we can apply that very knowledge to our own path and toward our own self-fulfillment. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Brevity Code. Today, I'm really excited. I have a super special guest. Uh, His name is Bill Burke. He is an extraordinary man, and we're going we're gonna to learn all about um, Bill's accomplishments today. And they are so far and so reaching that um, I, am, I am humbled to be in the presence of this man. So, um, Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. I'm privileged and happy to be here, and I appreciate the invitation. And I look forward to having a, a good discussion about some of the things that are near and dear to my heart. Oh, cool. So, to give a... a, a an intro to Bill um, would take quite a long time. So what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give some cliff notes because, again, this is a, this is a very um, highly accomplished individual that is sitting just a few feet from me. So Bill is a lawyer by trade. He's got a degree from Stanford Law. He specializes in international and domestic capital market transactions. He's had uh, successful appearances at the Supreme Court level, he's got five Lifetime Achievement Awards for, with different organizations. His honors 
go on and on and on. And we could literally have a podcast about his legal career and, and significant achievements in legislation. But that is not why we are here today. That would, that would be the wrong person for, for that one. But it, we are here today because Bill uh, is, is also an extraordinary climber. So just to give you a, a little rundown um, of what's happening here, he has successfully climbed Everest twice. He's had six attempts. He's done both the north and the south side of Everest. He has also successfully summited the seven summits, which are the highest mountains of each of the seven continents. And and Bill's going to actually correct me on that because he's actually done eight, and we're going to learn why that is the case. And beyond, beyond that, what makes Bill's success and achievements so remarkable is that He's done all of this when most people his age enter retirement and they move to Palm Springs. You see, Bill is 76 years old. He did all this starting at age 60 in terms of the achievements. And we're, we're going to dive into some specifics. So maybe we start with the, the eight summits as opposed to seven. Can you give us a sense of that? Yes. I've actually climbed eight summits on seven continents. There's seven continents in the world. And each continent has its own highest mountain. So one of the dreams of mountaineers is to climb the seven summits, the highest mountain in every continent. But there is a dispute about whether Australia is a continent or whether it's part of the larger continent of Australasia, which includes New Zealand and some of the islands in the Pacific, Indonesia. And if Australia is a continent. The highest mountain on Australia is a little walk-up called Kosciusko, Mount Kosciusko, 7,200 feet high, really easy. But if Australia is not a continent, but is part of Australasia, then the highest mountain in Australasia is a very, very technically difficult rock mountain called the Karstens Pyramid, which is located in Papua New Guinea. And so I wanted to cover my bases and make sure I tagged the summit of the highest mountain in every continent. So I climbed both Kosciusko in Australia and the Karstens Pyramid in Papua New Guinea. So I've actually climbed eight summits on seven continents, and that's why I named my website Eight Summits. Yeah, and and for everyone um, listening out there, please do check out eightsummits.com. Bill has a, um, I don't know, a library is probably a good word, of content, um, not only from, and he's an amazing writer too. So there's a lot of written journal entry and a lot of, um, video footage. And, and by the end of this podcast, we're going to learn what he intends to do with this content. Um, but otherwise it's great reference material. Um, if you want to be blown away or if you really want to transport yourself into seeing and living and breathing what this man has done. And I was just thinking about you yesterday. So here I am, I'm on a little, uh, I'm on a trail run in, in our local, you know, state park here, uh, Crystal Cove at El Moro. And I'm huffing and puffing and it's, it's a warm day and I'm sweating. And I'm thinking, God, I'm, I'm like, I'm out of breath. I can't even make it up this hill that a couple of years ago I used to make it up. And I consider myself, a, I've done some things, not quite anywhere near your things, but I've done some things. And then I just had this bill moment where I was like, okay, dude, you've got to suck it up right now because here I am, you know, probably a mile from my car where I know I have a, a nice water in the, in the cooler waiting for me. And I'm just huffing and puffing up this little trail. And, and then I think about being 
so removed. I think about you being so removed from civilization and so removed from comforts and so removed from family and loved ones. And it just, um, it's hard to articulate what that emotion, I don't even know that I've been in an emotional or mental state. Like, like I said, I've ran marathons. I know what it's like to suffer, but there's people all around you cheering you on with signs and like giving you water. And here you are on a mountaintop, lonely, windswept, you're freezing to death. I mean, why do you do the things you do? I've always loved mountains and mountaineering. I, I really didn't start climbing, especially alpine peaks, until I retired at age 60. But I've always loved mountains. I love the challenge of mountains. Uh, it's a way for me to test myself, to see what I'm made of, to see what makes me tick, to get a sense of what I can accomplish at my age in, in the mountaineering area. And so I guess I just, I love the challenge. And I love, the other great thing about what I've done in doing the seven summits is it's allowed me to travel all around the world. I've been on every continent. Uh, and boy, that's a fun trip. And that's interesting. Just for example, Antarctica, uh, that was just a blow away trip for me to to stand on that continent. And so it's given me the opportunity to travel. I don't just climb. Uh, when I go to these various venues, I make a point of going early or staying a little longer and seeing the, the sites, going to the to the villages that may be near the climbing areas. Uh, I'll travel to the major cities. For example, when I climbed Mount Elbrus, the highest mountain in Europe, which is in Russia, I made a point after the trip of visiting uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg, and it was just so much fun. When I did Kilimanjaro, which is located in Africa, the highest mountain in the African continent, I took a uh, four-day safari, photo safari afterwards. So it's it's been a lot of fun for me, and it's given me the, an opportunity to see the world. It's not just about climbing. Yeah. And you're also, you're also, like you said, you're literally embedded with the locals. When, when you climb those mountains, I mean, you're, you're, those excursions can be long, correct? I mean, like, an, what is it, what is the average duration of like an Everest trip sort of you, when you, when you land, I guess it's in Nepal or, or well, I guess, yeah, is that right? I mean, yes. You land in Kathmandu, Nepal, if you're going to do a South side Everest climb, typically you'll fly into Kathmandu and and spend some time there getting everything ready and meeting your team if you're with a team. And a typical Everest trip, whether it's the south side in Nepal or the north side, which is in Tibet, is going to take about two months. Yeah. Right now, we're in the middle of the Everest season. Or not the middle. We just started the Everest season. Generally, you'll travel over to Kathmandu in late March, maybe early April. And the season begins, and it ends in early June. You may be able to stretch it out to the first or second week of June, but typically it ends in the first or second week of June because that's when the uh, uh, the, the monsoon comes in from the Bay of Bengal and just shuts down the mountains. So it's typically a, a two-month trip to climb Mount Everest. And the reason it takes so long is... First of all, you have to trek to base camp. If you're doing a south side trip, uh, you trek from the little village of Lukla in the mountains, of uh, the Himalaya Mountains. You trek about 35 miles just to get to base camp before you even start climbing. 35 miles. It's about 35 miles tr the trek is from Lukla 
little village in the mountains that you fly to from Kathmandu. What elevation are you out there? Luka is about 7,500 feet. And base camp, which is where you trek to, is... 17,600 okay. feet. So you're gaining a lot of altitude. You got to move really slow because of that. Right. So that trek takes six, seven days. And then when you get to the mountain, you don't just climb the mountain. You have to acclimatize your body to the altitude. And so you end up climbing the mountain multiple times, not to the summit, but mm-hmm. to give you an example, you'll arrive at base camp and rest for a while, and then you'll climb up to camp one. Uh, on uh, above the Kumbu Icefall and spend some time there, and then you'll retreat back to base camp. And then maybe three days later, you'll climb up to Camp 2, which is at the west shoulder of Mount Everest, and you'll spend a day or two there, and then you move all the way back down to base camp and rest for a week or so. And then your third rotation will be up to Camp 1, on up to Camp 2, and you may even climb up to Camp 3, which is on the Lhotse face, and spend a night there, and then, again, retreat back down to base camp. And on that third rotation, typically, uh, people will move down into the lower elevations, go down to the village, and spend some time in a tea house, and order off a menu, and sleep Mm -hmm. in a bed. And the reason why you're doing, and then the fourth rotation is when you move up to the summit all the way to the summit and back. And the reason you do these in rotations, the reason it takes so long is because you have to acclimatize your body to the lack of oxygen in the atmosphere. So, for example, if you were to fly in a helicopter to the summit of Mount Everest from sea level and they were to drop you off on the summit and leave you there, you would be unconscious in about three minutes and dead in about seven or eight minutes. Is that right? And the reason for that is there's just not enough oxygen at the summit of Everest. It's a third of the oxygen at sea level. There's not enough oxygen at the summit of Mount Everest to sustain life for any period of time. So you go through this acclimatization process where you, 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 you rotate up and down the mountain three times before you attempt the summit. And what's happening there is your body is sensing the lack of oxygen in the atmosphere and is rapidly building red blood cells to accommodate or compensate for the lack of oxygen. So as you move higher, the oxygen level decreases, but your red blood count increases because your red blood cells are what carry oxygen to your body. And that process is called acclimatization. And you have to do that on these big mountains in order to survive. And that's why it takes two months to climb Mount Everest. And I can imagine the bonds that are formed with with the people you're climbing with and the Sherpas. We're going to get into that, but I want to, so let's put some, let's put some dates and, and, and timestamps here. So May 23rd, 2009, you become the oldest American to reach the summit uh, at age 67. This is the South side. That right? was the South side climb. Yes. A Nepal climb. And then on May 25th, 2014, you become the oldest person living outside of Asia to reach the top of the world at age 72. Correct? And that's correct. And that was a a climb from the north side in Tibet. So my goal, Ryan, was to summit Mount Everest from both the south approach, which is in Nepal, and the north approach, which is in Tibet. So in 2014, when I summited Mount Everest from the north approach in Tibet, I broke my own record from 2009 as the oldest American and became the oldest person living outside of Asia 
to reach the summit of Mount Everest. The oldest person in the world is a Japanese individual who was 80 when he summited a number of years ago. Do you know him? I don't know him. He lives in Japan, and uh, he's the oldest person in the world to summit. And w- maybe we can talk about that a little later as far as my plans. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, oh, man. <laughs> I don't want to give any hints here. But uh, So he uh, holds that record. He's held it for quite a while. There was a Nepalese climber this last season, not this season, but last year's season, there was a Nepalese climber who was 81 or 82, to, I, I forget exactly his age, but he was going to try to break the Japanese record. And tragically, he got to base camp and died. And we don't know what the cause was. Wow. Could have been a heart attack. Who knows? But Wow. Uh, and you do hold, you do hold the distinguished honor, if I'm correct, that you are the, are you the, the oldest living person to have climbed both the north and the south yes i'm i reached the summit on the north side in 2014 at age 72 and uh the south side i reached the summit in 2009 i was 67 so um i'm the oldest person to climb both the north and the south side at at that age yes yeah it's remarkable i i just i can't I mean, you're really the you're really the definition of sort of age is just a number, and you know, you said earlier you know you were talking about you know, you you enjoy the challenge. I feel like it's more. It's you know, what do you say to those people? You know, you've, you've heard um, the expression like again when I was running a bunch of marathons and people were commenting like, oh, well, what are you running away from? You know, you hear that and. And I, I didn't give that much mind. I, I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew it had a limited time cap. And I, I kind of knew that in my period in life, that's what I needed to do for me. Is it more for you than achievement? And what what is, what's the driving? F- I know because it's there, right? But what is the motivation for you? And, and why, why when you, you retired, instead of becoming the typical senior, right? And, and having a great life. You had a great career. You could do whatever you want. You decided to go do probably the hardest thing I can even think of on the planet to do. Why do you do that? Maybe that's the reason because it's considered one of the most difficult physical and mental challenges in the world to, to climb Mount Everest, to do the seven summits. And that probably was somewhat of a motivating factor for me. I want to emphasize though that I, I climb these mountains. I go on these adventures, uh, do these alpine climbs, not for fame or fortune or to prove how how good I am or how strong I am, what I'm capable of. I do it for myself. I do it because I love the challenge. I guess I'm an, I've always been an A-type personality mm-hmm. and I love to take on significant challenges. I like to set big goals for myself in life. Yeah. So, for example, when I was in college, I wanted to get into a really good law school, and I worked really hard to make that happen. And then when I was in law school, I wanted to be a, a partner in one of the major law firms in the country, so I worked really hard uh, to get into a really top-notch law firm. And mm-hmm. then when I was in the law firm, I wanted to be the best that I could be at what I did. And so I've always pushed myself really hard when I set goals to, to accomplish those goals. I, When I set a goal for myself, 
whether it's achievement in a, a legal career or whether it's climbing a mountain, I go all out for it. I put everything I have into it, and I do everything possible to make to make it happen. And I guess I just like that challenge. I I, I love uh, uh, seeing what I'm made of, see, seeing how much I can accomplish if I set my mind to making it happen. And I I think that's just part of my DNA and it's hard to explain it otherwise. It's not a matter of fame or fortune. I mean, I, the things I've done in mountaineering, the, the mountains I've climbed are insignificant compared to what other people have done. You look at Sir Edmund Hillary yeah. and Tenzing Norgay, who were the first persons to summit Mount Everest. You right. look at some of the current alpine climbers out there yeah. climbing the highest mountain, um, the highest mountains in the world, K2 is an example, the 14 peaks that are over 8,000 meters without oxygen. That's way more significant than than what I've done. So it's not about fame or fortune. It's really about testing myself to see what I'm made of and uh, and uh, enjoying the, the adventure along the way. That's what it's what, that's what it's all about for me. So if let's let's dig a little bit more into the the keys to motivation because you said okay yeah you know you were in school you want to get in the best firm you got in the best firm and you wanted to accomplish you know, the things you accomplish. And then you see a mountain, you say, okay, I'm going to climb that mountain. But so for, again, for our listeners out there, can you give some nuggets or some, some things to think about? Because I think what happens a lot of times is people have the big goal and they don't know how to take the first step to get to the big goal. And what happens is they get frustrated and then they give up and then they see guys like you, succeeding and they go, God, how does he do it? Yeah. Okay. You're alpha and you're incredibly intelligent and driven and motivated. But, but what are some of those, if you may share, if you, if you can articulate that, what, what are some of those small steps you might tell someone who has a big goal to get out of the starting block? Well, I, I think first, just to take as an example, my mountaineering, when I decided I was going to start these alpine climbs, I began by taking a course in alpine climbing. It was just out of Seattle and the mountains there. And it was a six day course because I wanted to learn what it was all about. I wanted to get a sense of whether it was something I enjoyed and thought I could be good at. And so I took baby steps. I started with, with the course and learned the basics, the safety techniques. And, and, and then from there I took it in in small sequential steps. So I didn't start by saying, I'm going to do the seven summits. So I'm going to take a course and right. I'm going to learn uh, all as much as I can about uh, mountaineering. And then I'm going to start climbing mountains. And I'm going to take them in sequence. So I started with Mount McKinley. It's now called Denali in Alaska. And then I did Aconcagua in Argentina. And I took baby steps. I, I took it slow at a time. And then as I continued to evolve in my mountaineering, it then became apparent that I wanted to do the seven summits. So what I would advise people in life is when you set big goals, whether it's mountaineering or whether it's achieving some significant accomplishment, is to learn as much as you can about it, take small steps, and, uh, and learn from your mistakes. I think it's really important to be able to deal with failure. Yeah, because if you take my case, I climbed Everest six times and summited twice, so four times I didn't reach the top. And 
what I did is in those four times where I didn't reach the summit is I tried to think, well, what, what can I learn from my experience? What can I do differently? How can I train harder? Uh, how can I make, uh, make it to the top in my next attempt? So I think you need to learn from your mistakes. You need to uh, be prepared to accept failure along the way and uh, just never give up. Um, and I think that's a great answer. And on that note, if I could, Ryan, one more yeah. thing I want to say is that's kind of a global look at at how to get where you want to be in small steps through learning and training and learn from your mistakes. But while you're engaged along the way in an effort to accomplish your goal, it's also important, for example, climbing. When I climb these big mountains, I take it a step at a time. So I'll look up and I'll try to find a spot on the horizon that I want to reach. And that becomes my goal, little baby steps. And then once I get to that spot, I'll look, I'll look whether it's a rock outcropping or a, a, a snow field or whether it's a, a head wall. I, I take it little steps at a time as I'm climbing and my goal becomes just to reach that next landmark. And then when I reach that landmark, I'll set another small goal. And I think that's part of learning as you go and, and accomplishing your goals in life is set, set small targets, try to reach those targets and then set other targets along the way. Yeah. And I think that that is a nice um, transition into, I came across your six keys to being fit to climb, but I feel like it's sort of a metaphor for what we're talking as an underlying theme today, which is to be ready for life, right? To be fit for life. And so if we could just maybe take a couple of minutes, sure. you know, maybe to go through each hit list. And again, I think, you know, you'll be speaking maybe specifically to climbing, but I think as we're, as we're hearing Bill talk about the six keys um, to being fit to climb, I think there's a lot we can extract that probably applies to everyday life and everyday goal setting. So the first one's physical prep. I mean, I think I don't know how much that, I, let's hear your climbing explanation because I think everyone understands don't be a couch potato. But as it relates to climbing, um, you know, as you're gearing up and we're going to spend a whole chunk of time talking about um, Everest uh, guys. So I know you're probably excited and waiting to hear that. And when there's stuff beyond, there's so much to build. I, anyway, so in, in let's talk about the physical prep thing first. So when you're gearing up for, for an Everest climb, um, take us through what your workouts might generally, I know we, it's a, I know it's a huge program, but generally speaking, what might you expect? So my workouts in prep for Everest start with three days a week in the gym. I have a, a membership in a, a local gym and I'll, I'll go in there usually Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And I'll work out for about two hours. It's a pretty significant, tough workout. I don't go easy on myself with my physical preparation. I'll I'll start. I'll do everything from treadmill running, uh, uh, stair steps, elliptical, stationary bike, and then I get into weight training. I'll lift weights, sit ups, pull ups. I'm on a lot of uh, of the equipment at the gym uh, during my three days a week, two hour preparation. So that's that's part of it. And then I usually will take Saturday off, and then on Sunday I bicycle ride with my grandson Oliver. 
we'll talk about him, I'm sure, yeah, later, but yeah. he's disabled, so I have a trailer, and I hitch that trailer to my bike, and we go on 30, 40, 50-mile bike rides up and down the coast in the mountains, and that's fantastic training, and it's great because I get to do it with my with my beloved grandson, Oliver. So three days a week in the gym, two hours, all kinds of equipment, and a tough workout. It's a tough workout. I'm sweating, and it's I don't go light on myself. And then on Sunday, I bike. And then when it gets to about two months before liftoff for Kathmandu, so for example, in maybe January or February, I crank that up to five days a week in the gym, two-hour workout. And Sunday with Oliver and the bike, Saturday I take off. And then about two weeks before I actually leave for Kathmandu, I stop everything and let my body recover. Okay. So it's a, it's a, it's a real physical regimen, and it's worked for me. I don't have trainers that help me, and I just do what I feel is right for me and what works for me, and it's been great. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, do you pay much mind to, you know, smartwatches and your heart rate monitor and your your, your mileage and your calorie intake and, your, you know, all the data that we can – do you just go, nah, I just do I don't do feet. any of that. I don't have a smartwatch. I don't pay attention to heart rates. Uh, I listen to my body is yeah. what I do. And I'm not recommending that for others. It could be that uh, others want to want to measure their workouts in that way. But it, for me, I have become pretty good at listening to my body and knowing when I've had enough. And so, for example, on Everest, they have these pulsometers that they put on your finger that will tell you what your oxygen content of your blood is. And people will show up at base camp and on the mountain, and they have these, these little uh, pulsometers that will measure the blood content of your uh, or the oxygen content of your blood and give them a sense of how their body is reacting to the altitude. I never do that. I don't want to use those devices because I don't want them to stress me out. Yeah. And I feel like for, for me, I am capable of being able to listen to my body and feel for myself whether, whether I'm doing well or not. So I'm not into the high tech uh, uh, workouts and the high tech equipment. I don't do that. I just haven't felt that it was necessary. Again, I'm not saying it's not a good idea and other people may look at it differently, but sure. just for me, uh, I, I do it the old fashioned well, way. Yeah, and your method has served you well. <laughs> so uh, next you have a mental commitment. That's really critical. I, when people, I'm, I'm always asked at presentations I give, well, what's your physical preparation? How do you get ready for these big mountains? And I always go through that just as I did with you and explain my, my workout routine. But I always tell people when they ask that question, the physical preparation, as important as that is, and it's critical for a big mountain like Everest, is way less important than the mental preparation. You really have to be mentally committed to succeed. And it's not just mountaineering. This is generally true of, of life and goals you set in life for yourself. You have to be mentally prepared to deal with the challenges you're going to face because life on Everest is, can be really brutal. And it's not just the climbing. It's not the difficulty of the climbs and the, the terrain and the lack of oxygen. Just sitting at base camp for a week. 
can yeah. be a real drain Mental on your toxic. morale, yeah. and you get sick of the food. You have some people have a hard time sleeping. They they get headaches. They get bored. There's there's only so much you can do in a day, and so the whole adventure is severely mentally challenging. I yeah. find when I'm climbing these big mountains that there's demons that sit on my soldier and mm. shoulder and are telling me, why don't you quit? Why don't you, you know, the mountain will be here next year. You know, why don't you turn around and go down? You can come back. This is just too hard. It's, and I find that I have to, I have to, to fight through that and reject those impulses to give up. Now, if I get a signal that it's not safe, if I get a signal that I'm in danger, that's a different issue. And I listen to those. But uh, mental commitment, the ability to deal with failure, the ability to work through the challenges, the ability to not give up and be committed to succeed is extremely important in mountaineering as it is in life in general. Right. Way more important than physical in my mind. And I think this bleeds into the next one, which is pure motives. Because you're talking about fighting the urges to not come down that mountain. And, and the pure motives, I think, you better be damn sure why you're up there in the first place. That's correct. I always say climb with a pure heart. And what I mean by that is if you're climbing Mount Everest for fame or for fortune or to prove how great you are, or to be the first person to reach the various camps on the mountain, to be better than the next person on your team, that's not climbing with a pure heart. Pure motive climbing means climb because you love it, climb to see what you're capable of, climb to see how far you can get, hopefully you'll reach the summit, but if you don't, be prepared to turn around and try again. So that's what I mean by climbing with a pure heart. And unfortunately, I see in the many trips I've made to Mount Everest and my many climbs, I've seen a lot of people that are up there for the wrong reasons, and they're usually the first ones to go home. Yeah. Um, the next one I think is is interesting. Um, you have spiritual readiness. So I mean, do you do you bring religion into your life, and is that a, a motivating factor and something that's a fallback safety for you? Or what yeah, definitely, you? I I'm a deeply committed Christian, and but the point I make with spirituality is applies whatever your religious beliefs may be, and so for me, spiritual readiness is really important in climbing, uh, trusting in in your God, uh, trusting in yourself, uh, respecting the people in the country that you're privileged to climb in, uh, respecting their culture and their religion. That's what I mean by spiritual readiness is, is the importance of just being thankful that you're being given this opportunity by God to accomplish something great in your life. Uh, is important to me. Do you feel that? Um, and we'll, maybe we'll, maybe I'll hold. I'll reserve this question for when we're talking about Everest because we're, we're almost there. Um, so there's technique, and then there's genes. So those are the final two on on your six keys. Maybe give us a sense sure. again of, of technique. Well, technique, climbing technique is important, and by that I mean there's various ways of climbing to make it easier on your body. So, for example, there's rest stepping. It's kind of hard to explain that without actually showing you what I mean, but rest stepping is where you you move up the mountain 
and rest with each step so that none of the muscles in your body are being challenged. And so rest stepping is a technique that is critically important on steep sections of the mountain because it allows your body to rest between each step. The other type of technique is pressure breathing. So that's uh, exhaling and inhaling at maximum capacity so you fill your lungs with oxygen. Mm -hmm. So uh, pressure breathing is important. Do you practice that pre-acclimb too or? Uh, well, it's it's interesting. Rest-upping and pressure breathing is something that takes a while to learn how to do mm-hmm. and to get used to. But once you learn it and you practice it, it becomes second nature. So when I'm climbing Everest or any other big mountain, I just dial that in as part of my routine. I don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about that is I meet with a lot of people on these mountain climbs, not just the Himalaya climbs, but the the climbs in these other big mountains. And I'll ask them, are you rest stepping? Are you pressure breathing? It's really important. And a lot of them have no idea what I'm Mm -hmm. talking about. Wow. So it's important uh, to to learn those techniques because you want to make it, as easy as you can on yourself. You want to give yourself every margin uh, uh, for success. And so why not use these techniques? They are proven to work. I always tell people, take rest-stepping as an example. Uh, If you can dial in your rest-stepping technique, so you're resting your muscles with each step, you can walk up Mount Everest with a refrigerator on your back. And obviously I'm, I'm exaggerating, but it is really, really important to do that, to maximize your opportunities to succeed and to, to give your body a break, frankly. Well, I think those are two really good examples when I, when I asked you the question about, you know, what are the, I understand you set the, the big goals, but how do you take the first, you know, step and get out of the starting blocks? I said, and, and here, there's a perfect example. You're just talking about simply a, a technique to get up the mountain, and then you're talking about breathing. And you've learned those, those they seem insignificant to most, right? As you said, like most people even aren't aware of them. But there's, there's a good example of you paying attention to the small details to achieve the big goals. That's right. The other technique is one I mentioned earlier, and that is to set tiny goals as you're moving up to the summit. And by that, I mean you, you look ahead – at what's ahead of you, whether it's a head wall or a snow field or an ice uh, serac, you look ahead of you and, and instead of thinking about the summit, when you're a long ways from the summit, just set a goal, a small goal. Maybe it's just a landmark you can see a half a mile ahead up, up the mountain and make it your goal to get to that point and then I'll take a little break maybe have a snack. And once I get there, then I'll set another target. And that's a great way to break a big challenge into down into tiny little pieces. Right. And it makes it a lot easier. So that those techniques are, are really important in climbing. And a lot of people don't realize that. And that's why I mentioned earlier, I took that climbing course when I started because I wanted to learn that stuff. There's also really great books you can read on mountaineering. If you're really interested in getting into it, there's some really good books that are out there that that can help you. Right, and then you, genes, you mentioned genes. Yeah, genetics. That, that's the last yeah. uh, 
factor that is important to success in mountaineering. And I am blessed. I think the only reason I've been able to do what I've done in the mountains is because I have, I have, I think I have good climbing genes. And by that, I mean, I typically people that climb Alpine climb, especially Everest suffer from headaches, splitting horrendous headaches the whole time they're there. They can't sleep. They have no appetite and therefore are not eating, which is absolutely imperative that you do. Uh, they get lethargic. They they get uh, uh, depressed. And for me, I never have those problems. I sleep great on Everest. <laughs> I I don't lose my appetite. I don't get headaches. I don't have any of those symptoms of altitude sickness that a lot of a lot of people have. And I'm talking about people that summit. Even the ones that summit will say it was a horrendous experience. I couldn't sleep. I didn't have any appetite. I had headaches the whole time. That doesn't happen to me. And I think it's because I've I've got good climbing genes. My biggest issue is my age. That's my biggest physical limitation. That's what holds me back. But uh, fortunately, uh, I, I don't get altitude sickness, and it's it's, funny. it's really helps me. Do you, I mean, have you ever had a situation where maybe you're you know you're you're in a tent with a younger guy, you're climbing with a younger guy, he's looking at you like, "Come on, dude, you got white hair." You know, I could, <laughs> and here you are eating a meal, sleeping like a baby, mm. and not complaining, and you're you know. I mean, has there ever been a situation where they look at you and they just go like, you're, you're like superhuman. One of my biggest concerns when I first attempted Mount Everest was I didn't want to hook up with a guided outfit. There's guided climbs and there's unguided climbs. And if you want, I can explain that. But yeah, with a guided climb, yeah. you're hooked up with a guiding company that has uh, guides that are with you the whole time. And my concern was just what you mentioned, Ryan, that I would show up at base camp with my white hair at 60 years old or 65, whatever, and these guides <laughs> would look at me and say, this guy's not going to make Come it. On. we got to watch him. Yeah. Now i got two strikes against me, right? Yeah. And they're going to interpret anything thing and everything I do as a signal that they want to send me home. Right. And so I have, in every single one of my Everest climbs, I've climbed unguided. I don't have a guide with me. And it's for that very reason that you mentioned is I don't want to show up with two strikes against me. I don't want them making mm -hmm. assumptions about what I'm capable of because of my, my white hair. And uh, it's worked for me. Wow. Well, now when you, you're an elder statesman, when you show up now, I'm sure people know who you are. The Sherpas for sure do, right? I, is, you yeah, must... I never have that problem now. I, no. I, when I when I show up on Everest after my first couple of attempts, uh, people generally know who I am and they they know what I've done. And uh, I, I, I don't have that problem anymore. Right. I, <laughs> they, they know that... Uh, I'm going to get a, give it everything I have yeah. and they shouldn't make assumptions about me because of my age. And I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. Well, well earned, right? So let's, let's set the stage for Everest. Um, if, if anyone's seen, you know, touching the void, I think it's a, a harrowing example of what, what climbing can be like, but I let's, so you've, you've now trekked from Kathmandu, Nepal, 
the 35 miles, you arrive at base camp one. What's the scene there? Like what, give us a visual picture. Like what, it's an international community, I assume. Um, Oh, it's so much fun. It's so much fun. Uh, On the south side, you arrive at base camp, which is 17,600 feet. It's a big rocky section. It's just nothing but boulders and rocks sitting on top of a moving glacier. Right. The glacier is literally moving under you about three feet a day. And there's tents everywhere, yellow sleeping tents, big dining tents, dome tents, cook tents, bustling. It's like a bustling neighborhood of people. And it's so much fun because it's an international community. There's people from everywhere. I, When I climb, usually the people who are on my team are from all over the world. And it's fun for me to arrive at base camp because I've been there so many times. I kind of know what to expect, but I, I look in the faces of the people who are there for the first time and you can see the anxiety. Uh, yeah. You can see the pressure. You can see the fear. Yeah. And what I try to do with my teammates is to help them uh, uh, accommodate to the situation they're in and have confidence in themselves and realize that uh, they've got every bit as good a chance as anyone else to to succeed. But it's really fun. It's a, it's a bustling city of people. There's a medical tent there that's staffed by doctors to take care of people who get sick or have suffer injuries on the mountain. And going back to what you said earlier about my website, I have a section on my website called the gallery. And in that gallery, I have photos and videos of all my climbs, all my Everest climbs, the other uh, seven summits that I've reached. And so if people listening to this are interested in seeing what Everest Base Camp looks like, are interested in seeing what I'm talking about, just get onto my website, go to the gallery, find one of my Everest climbs, and you'll you'll see uh, photos and video that will give you a great picture of just how exciting it is to arrive there and realize you're you're attempting something that few other people have the opportunity to do and meeting just some wonderful people that are totally dedicated to to their reaching their goals in life. And and you mentioned earlier about when you assemble your team, what do you look for with each team that you assemble? Do you do you bring back the same sherpas? Do you what do you what do you are you trying to compensate for things that you maybe don't possess or think you don't possess? Or? Well, I don't the the way it works on Mount Everest is you sign up, let's take an unguided trip. I mentioned earlier, there's guided trips where the guides are with you the whole time and they climb with you and the whole team moves together as a group. And, and uh, I don't sign up for guided trips. They're not for me. I just don't feel like I need a guide with me the whole time. I feel like I have the mileage and experience yeah. to, to make the right calls. And so I travel in unguided trips. In an unguided trip, you sign up with a trekking company. I use a company in Kathmandu called Asian Trekking because they've been very good to me. They're like family to me now. Yeah. And uh, they put together the team. And the way it works is people from all over the world will sign up with Asian Trekking for a climb at Mount Everest. So when I get there, the team is already set. It's people from all over the world that have signed up to climb Mount Everest with Asian trekking, or it could be when any of the other guiding outfits. So I don't really have control over who's climbing with me when it comes to Mount Everest. 
I do have control over the Sherpa team. And the reason for that is that I know all the Sherpas with Asian Trekking. They know me. We're like a big family, honestly. And so I like to travel with the same Sherpas year after year because they know me, I know them, and I know I can count on them. And yeah. So I do I do have familiarity with the Sherpa team, but the, the climbers that I'm with are people that I meet when I get there. Well, that seems a bit dangerous, to be honest, when I'm hearing you say that because you're talking about you, you have to basically trust them with your life in a certain regard, right? I mean, so- Not really, Ryan. And here's the reason why. Uh, when I say a team, it's a team that's put together by Asian Trekking or the Trekking Company. So they're really vetted. Is that... And and that team shows up together at base camp and we dine together and everybody, person, everybody has their own sleeping tent, but we, we do dine together in the dining tent. But as far as the actual climbing with an unguided trip, you don't climb necessarily with your team. You climb when okay. you're ready with your Sherpa. Okay. And if you feel like you're not ready for a rotation up the mountain and other members of your team are moving up, then you stay. You stay at base camp. If you feel like you want to move ahead of them with your Sherpa, then you move ahead of them. Okay. And that's why I like unguided climbs because I'm in control. I have the independence to determine when I move and when I don't move. Okay. So it's generally just my Sherpa and me. Okay. So I'm not in those situations, Ryan, so tied Literally. to my team <laughs> where I have to count on them yeah. because I'm climbing with them. Yeah. In a guided climb, what you say is 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 accurate because in guided climbs you're with guides the whole time and your team moves together and so in that sense you are dependent upon them. Okay, good distinction there. Yes. So um, let's so out, out of base camp you go straight into the Kumbu Ice Fall. Is that the next? The step? first move up, the first rotation from base camp is up the Kumbu Ice Fall to Camp One. It's about sense? 19, Camp One's about 19,000 feet. And oh. again, I'll refer your listeners back to my website yeah. so they can actually see what I'm talking about by looking at my videos. But you move up the Kumbu Ice Fall to Camp One, and generally on your first rotation, that'll be it. You'll come right back down to base camp and rest. So the Kumbu Ice Fall is, as a glacier moves down the mountain, when it reaches reaches very steep sections of the mountain, it starts to break up and disintegrate because the lower part of the ice glacier is moving faster than the upper part. And it creates a jumble of rocks and ice and seracs and ice towers. And it opens up these gaping crevasses that go down hundreds of feet. You can't even see the bottom of it. And it just happens that that section of Mount Everest is at the bottom of the mountain nearest base camp. So the first part of your climb oh, is up man. through that Kumbu Icefall, and that means you're moving up through an icefall, a glacier that is moving about three feet a day. In order to get across these gaping crevasses, you have to use ladders, and those ladders are installed by Sherpas that are called icefall doctors. So you you cross those ladders, and keep in mind now you've got a heavy down suit on and you've got boots and crampons attached to your boots and you've got a backpack and and now you got to cross a ladder looking down into a gaping cavern that may go down several hundred feet if mm. you fall down there they don't even go down and look for you it's, it's they don't they, they if you can't see to the bottom no so that you that's how you get across <laughs> these crevasses and Welcome then you'll reach sections that are that are these giant ice towers 
that can be as high as a five-story building. And they'll put ladders up those towers, and you got to move up those ladders. And uh, that's the Kumbu Icefall. It's it's one of the most dangerous sections of Mount Everest, but I don't think most of the deaths generally occur in the icefall. They occur for other reasons higher up on the mountain. And it's my understanding, too, that that the Kumbu Icefall, too, there can, I don't know if, I don't, know if they're called avalanches, but those those things can literally shift and roll. So it'd be like, is that true? Like you'd have cars, boulders the size of cars and all right, well, coming at you? What happens is that the ice fall is bounded by the west shoulder of Everest on one side of the ice fall and by a mountain called Noopsy on the other side. And so when the snow falls, which it does all the time while you're there, and the snow falls on these on these mountains that that border the Kumbu Icefall. It builds up these giant uh, snowfields, and what can happen when the sun comes out is it can melt that ice, and then it'll cause avalanches. And those avalanches will come down into the Kumbu Icefall, and if mm. you're there, it can be deadly. Oh. In fact. It was in the year, I want to say 2011. No, it was the year in the year 2012, I think it was. They had a giant avalanche come off the west shoulder of Everest into the Kumbu Icefall and killed 16 people. They were all Sherpas. Just swept away. Just swept them down into the crevasses, or they were killed by, by being struck by rocks. So. That's another thing about the Kumbu Icefall is you need to get through it as quickly as you can because those avalanches that come off the adjoining mountains can can be deadly. What is that duration to cross the Kumbu Icefall? Well, for a fast climber, unlike me, uh, you can get up the Kumbu Icefall three, four hours. For me, because I move so slowly— and that's partly because of my age and it's partly because of my climbing style. Yeah. That's just my climbing style. Again, that goes back to what we talked about earlier with technique. For me, it'll take more like 8 to 10 hours to get up the Kumbu Icefall to Camp 1. So everybody moves at their own pace. And that's another reason I like to travel alone with a Sherpa and not with the teams because I move slower than most people and it works for me. So speaking of sort of treacherous or ominous um, places on the mountain like the Kumbu Icefall. Um, it occurs to me that, and I, I had heard this to be true, that on on parts of the mountain where climbers have succumbed to the elements, the cold, um, that they are there along, they're still there along the route. Um, you have passed these individuals. Uh, what does that give you a gravity moment? Does that give you pause? Does it scare you? Did, is there a moment of reverence? What goes through your oh, mind? Absolutely. And I've passed many bodies on Everest. And typically, if a person dies on Mount Everest below 26,000 feet, which is Camp 4 on the south side of the mountain, if they die below that level, their bodies are brought down. They're put in sleds and they're brought down and they're returned to their families. Above 26,000 feet, which is 
what's called the death zone on Everest, above 26,000 feet. It's called the death zone because you need to get in and out of there as fast as you can because there just isn't enough oxygen in the atmosphere to sustain life. So even with supplemental oxygen wow. in the death zone, you've got to be moving and get, get in and out of there as, as fast as you can. But in the death zone, above 26,000 feet, they typically don't remove the bodies. It's just too hard to move a frozen body down the mountain. Now, in recent years, on both the south and the north side, they've made more of an effort to remove the bodies, and some have been brought down and returned to their families. But typically, what happens above 26,000 feet is they're left there, and out of respect for the deceased and respect for the climbers, they will generally push those bodies off the route um, for obvious reasons, and they are committed to the mountain. And, of course, you, when I pass a body, uh, it's a it's an awesome, sad, reverential moment for me, and I always stop and say a prayer because it's an awful thing to see and you realize here's a person who was generally young mm. fit or they wouldn't be on the mountain mm -hmm. uh, they've got a family right. that's devastated by the loss that it'll never see him again and it's a very s sober somber moment and I always stop and say a prayer and and uh yeah, think about that person and that person's family. But I had a teammate. This is an interesting story. In 2012, I had a teammate on the north side of Everest. That was not the year I summited, but I had a teammate on the north side of Mount Everest who was from, I want to say Belgium I, or the Netherlands, uh, who was up at the second step, which is just an hour or so from the summit. So he was very close to, to the top. He was definitely going to make it mm. to the summit. He was fit. He was doing well. He was climbing well. And on that trip, I came down for a variety of reasons to base camp. Well, he came down to base camp and he said, and he was in tears. He was one of my teammates. He was in tears. And he said, Bill, I, he said, I, got to this body that was right in front of me. It was a person hunched over, frozen, with a bag over his head to keep the Gorax, the blackbirds, from pecking out his eyes. They mm. put a bag over his head. He mm. said, I reached that body at the second step, just less than a 1,000 feet from the summit. And he said, you know, I couldn't pass that body. He said, I could not bring myself to move around that body on the mountain. And he said, I turned around and came down. So he gave up his summit because he couldn't bring himself to the point of passing a body right in front of him. And I deeply respected him f for those feelings because he definitely was going to make the summit. But he said to me, he said, Bill, I, as I looked at that, I thought to myself, has mountaineering come to the point where you can pass a person who's passed away on the mountain mm. as though it's a piece of trash in the street and he said, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And he said, I vowed at that point in time that uh, I will trek, I will do hikes, but I'll never do another alpine climb. You so know, people react to that differently. Well, it, it, and you tell that story, and thank you for sharing that, but it, it goes back to your keys earlier. That's someone that's climbing without ego. 
That's someone that's mm-hmm. climbing with pure intent, right? I think that's so telling right there. That guy was climbing for the right reason. Absolutely. You're, you're 100% right. right, Ryan. And that's why I respected him so much for what he did. Most people would not have made that judgment call yeah. on the mountain. Right. And I'm, I'm not saying that they should reach the same conclusion he did. If it had been me, uh, I don't know what I would have done, but I, I think I probably would have continued on. And as I said, I would have stopped and said a prayer and shown reverence and respect for the person. I might have wanted to do what is generally done with bodies that are right on the the approach uh, and commit that body to the mountain. But I don't know that I would have turned around, but I respected him so much for sure. what he did. He he just said I couldn't right. bring myself to do it. He was in tears at yeah. base camp. And you're right. That's that's a guy with a pure heart. Yeah. Pure it's, heart. It's beautiful. I thing. respect him so much for that. Yeah. Um, take us maybe through, we, we talk a little bit about, or you mentioned earlier, way earlier about um, failures or perhaps self-doubt or overcoming adversity. Can you just take us through like, a bad day or a daunting situation that you faced on that mountain and what the circumstances were and what the outcome was? Well, four times that I climbed Mount Everest out of the six, I did turn around. I did have to make the decision to end my trip and go home. Now, personally, I don't consider that a failure. It may have been a failure to reach the summit, but I don't, I never considered the trip to be a failure. Yeah, right. And in a couple of those instances, I made that call to turn around because of my the physical condition of my body. I just didn't feel like I had enough uh, fuel in the gas tank to make it to the top and back. Uh, a couple of other times, it was weather-related, and I just felt like it wasn't safe to continue because the weather was closing in and uh, was a threat to survival. So four times out of the six that I've been on Everest, I had to make the tough call to turn around and go go back down. And for me, it was never really that hard of a judgment call because I knew I wanted to survive. I wasn't there to kill myself. I had made promises to my family and to myself about being as safe and conservative as I could be on the mountain. And I intended to keep those promises. I wanted to survive for another day. I've got a lot of things to live for. So it wasn't really a tough judgment call because it was the clear judgment call to make in those circumstances. And the interesting thing about that is is I'm moving back down the mountain after having turned around. I'm not feeling sorry for myself or trying to figure out who can I blame for this? You know, what did I do wrong? I'm already planning my trip for the next year. I'm already asking myself, and this is what I mentioned earlier about dealing with 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 failure, uh, I'm already asking myself, okay, didn't make it this year. Mountain will be here next year. I'm coming back. What lessons did I learn yeah, from great. this trip? What did the mountain tell me? What did my body tell me that I need to do different next year to succeed? Do I need to train harder? Do I need to take a different approach to the climb? And so I'm trying to learn what those lessons are so the next year when I come back, I, I can can succeed. So I never consider a turnaround a failure. I, I just feel blessed to, I mean, how many people can say they've put their foot on 
this sacred mountain. It's just, for me, it <laughs> gives me goosebumps to think about the fact sure. that here I am in this beautiful country with these beautiful people, whether it's Nepal and Nepalese people or in Tibet, the Tibetans, they're giving me the privilege to be in their country and to climb their mountain. And I just feel so privileged and so blessed. Uh, I don't consider a turnaround a failure. I consider it a good judgment call and uh, a promise I've kept to myself and my family. And I can come back next year. Yeah. And let's talk about the success of Everest. So you're, you've now reached the summit and you're sitting there and uh, what is going through your mind? Are you exhausted? Are, are you thinking, I got five minutes and I got to turn around and have it. Like, what, what are you thinking about? Well, it's a thrilling experience to reach the top. It's hard to describe how thrilling that is, how joyful you are when you mm. realize there's no higher to climb. I, I can't climb any higher. This is as high as I can go because it's the top of the mountain. That's a that's a great feeling, especially on an iconic mountain like like Mount Everest. But you've got to remember that you're, you're only halfway to your goal. Right. You're only halfway. <laughs> As Ed Veesters always says, getting to the top is optional and getting down is mandatory. Yeah. And so you're halfway to your goal and now you've got to make your way down and you need to recognize that most of the deaths and injuries are on the descent, not the, uh, not the ascent. And so you can only spend on Mount Everest maybe... 20 to 30 minutes max, and you need to turn around and start down because you don't want to be climbing in the dark. You need to hit certain turnaround targets. And so you don't have a lot of time to celebrate, but it is a, it is a fabulous, joyful experience. Now, for me, when I summited in 2009, I was caught in a horrendous storm and almost had to turn around because of it. And so when I got to the top... When I got to the summit, I had no view. I didn't get to see any. Just a whiteout. It was a, it was almost a whiteout condition. There was no view, so I didn't get to enjoy the view. I got to <laughs> enjoy the thrill of the experience, yeah. but I didn't have any views to, to take photos of. And when I summited again on the second, on the uh, 2014 trip from the north side, exact same thing happened. A uh, major <laughs> storm rolled in. Uh, on the north side of the mountain, just as I reached the top, slammed into the mountain. And it was the worst storm they'd had in Mount Everest for probably 12, 13 years. And getting down, and it, the storm went, raged on for four or five days. And getting down was a horrendous experience. It was like hell on earth, and I'll never forget that. So my second <laughs> summit on the north side was deja vu, the 2009 summit on the south side, I had no view, but it was thrilling. It was <laughs> so give it, give us a sense of that horrendous start. I mean, we're talking like what below zero and what kind of wind got like, what are we talking about? What happened was, I had I had I hire a meteorologist in Seattle to give me weather reports. Most people don't do that, and it's a big mistake. Definitely want there's another small thing that another small <laughs> thing that yep. people they don't even think about that, but right. I do. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not going to depend on anybody else's weather report. I'm not going to depend on anybody else to decide when to move and not move based on the weather. I want my own weather report. So I hire a meteorologist in Seattle. His name is Mike Fagan, and he gives me weather reports. And, of course, I share them with my team. So I was sitting on the north side on May 23rd, 2014 at high camp. And my meteorologist, Mike Fagan, was checking the weather, and he saw a storm was coming in from the Bay of Bengal. It was actually a cyclone, but it was turning away from Mount Everest. It was moving away, so he didn't call it to my attention. He didn't want to worry me or the team or my family, who was also getting these reports. So I left camp probably around 10 o'clock for the summit, and I'm moving my way up the summit. Mike checks the weather as I'm about an hour away from the summit, and he sees that storm has made a hard left turn and is just going gangbusters for Mount Everest. And at that point, since I'd already left, there was no way of reaching me to tell me this was on the way. So I had no idea it was coming. And it slammed into the mountain. Just about 10 minutes before I reached the summit, And as I said, it snowed for four solid days. The wind was blowing. The temperatures going down that mountain, and we had to get down as fast as we could. The temperatures were minus 40, minus 50. The wind was blowing, whiteout conditions. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. If you wanted to communicate with your Sherpa, you had to to scream into his ear because it's like like a fleet of jets flying overhead. The, the sound of a storm on Mount Everest is like a fleet of jets. So you can't communicate with with your Sherpa very well. The, the wind is bending you over, and now you're 28,000 feet up this mountain, and you got to get down to survive. And I'm telling you, that, that storm mm. for me was horrendous. And the thing is, you can't climb in a tent and wait it out, you you have to get down because you, your body isn't going to survive at that altitude very long. So that lasted, that storm lasted all the way down the mountain. Uh, we moved down from the summit to, to, to Camp 3, which is high camp on the north side, and from there we went down to Camp 2 and Camp 1, and then ultimately we got back down to base camp. But it was horrendous, and I'll never forget that. Wow. A um, couple of lighthearted questions now. Just, you know, these... <laughs> with all due respect this is real life stuff it's minus 50 whatever right how do you go to the bathroom how, you can't take your hand out of your glove how do you do you even want to go to the bathroom well it's a fair question right I mean, it's what, a fair question what, and I, I, I we, I'm always asked that question I'm happy to answer it if you're in a storm you know where it's blowing and snowing and you're generally not going to be worried too much about uh, going to the bathroom. Uh, you're you're concerned about survival. You're concerned about getting down. So your body is not telling you to stop. And, but uh, otherwise the way it works on Mount Everest is you, you, you pee on the mountain just wherever you can find a private spot. Uh, and that's accepted practice. And what else are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as far as number two, yeah. uh, uh, that gets a, a little bit trickier. And uh, they have the down suits have flaps in the back. You, you zip down, okay. and so you can you can uh, you can go to the bathroom. And 
you have to do that, obviously. Your body is demanding it, so it's not like you can ignore it. So, yeah, you, you can urinate and... and uh, uh, but can I get really graphic here? Yeah. So let's, I would imagine that's not a perfect science because maybe you're on a serious pitch. Maybe the zipper thing didn't, your hands are cold. You can't really tell if we made a clean exit there. And further, <laughs> is there, to, like, you, what do you do with the toilet paper? What, what, the, Bill, these are the things I would yeah, think about. No, if I was you climbing can, you can take, <laughs> again, if you're in a storm or if you're in inclement weather, you do the best you can and you don't worry about toilet paper or those sort of things you just oh boy you do the best you can you know to relieve yourself oh, man. but if you're not in a storm and typically yeah. you're you're not in storms the whole time you're on the mountains yeah. typically when you have to go hopefully you're at a base you're going to be you know you'll be on the mountain you can be you could be at high camp you could be on the summit and have to go and uh i remember when i climbed on the south side when i summited in 2009 i got up to a place called the balcony which is about 27,200 feet right above camp four which is at the south coal and i i had i de desperately had to go so yeah. i just knelt down on my knees and did the best to it was yeah. to pee and yeah. relieve myself because i i had to otherwise i'd go on my down suit which you don't want to do if you don't have to right. so generally though you, if, if weather permitting you're able to to handle those bodily functions without a whole lot of difficulty. A, a good question to ask, though, is what what happens when you uh, when you go number two? Asian trekking and a lot of the other trekking companies now are implementing a practice of requiring their climbers to take what they call wag bags. So mm -hmm. you bring your uh, you bring your waist human waste down in these wag bags and they're doing that as a way of trying to clean up the mountain sure and i really admire that and encourage that not all the teams do that some of them just leave it and it's it's, it's disgusting yeah but we always follow it we call it eco everest and we follow the practice of bringing uh, all all the human waste down and and i wish they all all teams did that if you climb Mount Whitney, as an example, here in California, the highest mountain in the continental U.S., I've climbed it about 19 times. I train on that mountain. They absolutely require, the rangers require it. And they check when you get back. You need to you know, have it. Yeah. yeah. And you get a big fine if you don't use that's the good. wag bags. And I think that should be the practice everywhere. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not so much on Everest, but it should be. Yeah. And and speaking of, um, you know, we're respecting the the hosting nation and you know you clearly um are a statesman you know and a great ambassador and a great face for the united states internationally in the climbing community um you were recognized by nepal if i'm correct and they actually named a peak or a mountain after you can you give me some clarification on that that was a huge honor and an unexpected honor when i was sitting at high camp on the north side of everest in 2014 when i summited uh, may 23rd was the date i was at high camp getting ready to move to the summit and i didn't know this but the government of nepal opened up 104 new peaks to climb you can't just go over to nepal or tibet and climb their mountains they have to be you have to get permits and a lot of the mountains they don't issue permits for. So in on May 23rd, the government of Nepal opened up 104 peaks to climb. And when they do that, they generally name the peaks. And 99% of the time, the names that are given are Nepalese names, Sherpa names. But unknown to me, when they opened these peaks, they named one of them after me, and they called it Burkong, 
My last name is Burke, and Kong in Nepalese means mountain. So they named this peak after me, deep in the Himalayas. And I summited, and I came home, and I didn't know anything about this. I had no idea. And about three, four months later, a, d- a dear Sherpa friend of mine who manages A's and Trekking came over with his brother to visit the U.S., and we had lunch right down here at the Beachcomber in Orange <laughs> County. And we're sitting at lunch eating, and, and, and Dawa Sherpa, the managing partner of Asian Trucking, says, oh, Bill, by the way, they named a mountain after you. <laughs> <laughs> I was blown away. I had no idea they were thinking about doing this, and it was such a huge honor because only a few Westerners have had mountains named after them in the Himalayas. Sir Edmund Hillary is one, who was the first to summit Everest, and uh, Maurice Herzog, who's the first to climb an 8,000-meter peak, had one named after him, and they named one after me, and uh, it, it was such an honor and such a privilege to have that happen. The reason they did it was not so much because of my mountaineering accomplishments, because there's a lot of people that have done way more than me, but I think it's the fact that I, I did succeed twice on Everest at my age, And but more important was they realized how much I deeply loved the people of Nepal and their culture and their religion, and I think it was a recognition of the closeness I have to the Nepalese people and the Sherpa community that they decided to do this for me. Right, and and then it obviously, you know, it occurs to me, it's like, okay, uh, Mr. Burke, here's your here's your mountain named after you, and now sort of the next sentence would be dot, 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 go climb it, <laughs> right? So you've made three attempts? Four attempts, Four. actually, yeah. So I... Thought I was done with my Himalaya mountain climbing when I summited Everest from the north side in 14. And then I learned when I got back home that they named Burkong after me. So I, I, they kind of reeled me back in. Right. I hadn't planned on going back to the Himalaya for a while. And so I made it my goal to climb this mountain that was named after me, my eponymous peak. And... I organized several expeditions. Now, these are expeditions, going back to the question you asked me earlier about how do you select teammates. When I set up the expeditions for Burkong, I did organize the team myself. I put the whole program together. I set, set up the climbing schedule. I invited people that I uh, that I knew and that had good mountaineering uh, uh, skills and attempted it four times over two years. And last October, and this mountain, by the way, it's 22,775 feet, so it's about 6,000 feet lower than Everest, but it is way more difficult. It is way more challenging. It is way more dangerous than Everest just because of the terrain. There's no level sections. It's incredibly steep, Mm. and uh, the head walls are almost impossible to scale. So I attempted it four times, and last October I put a team together, a small team together, and uh, one of my dear friends named Noel Hanna and three of my best Sherpa friends uh, were able to summit uh, Burkong. And I wasn't with them. I was a day behind on the mountain because I moved slowly, so I, I wasn't on the top with them, but we succeeded, and I'm thrilled that it's now been climbed. and that, So that was the first time that, was the first, that it had been yeah, climbed? The, uh, well, the first ascent 
was in 2015 when I made my first attempt to climb it, and we didn't quite reach the summit because the conditions were too dangerous. But the first summit was last October, and that was when Noel Hanna and Samdan Boti and Pimba Sherpa and Naga Sherpa reached the summit, and the whole thing is captured in film. I've just posted yesterday on my website a couple of videos of the climb, and if people are interested in seeing what an unclimbed peak looks like and how expeditions work, that would be a good video to watch. Yeah, I did get a chance to catch some of it. It looked like you had some pretty nice weather, actually, from what I was. We looking did at. have we did have pretty good weather. Yes, we were we were fortunate to have to have good weather. Yeah. So, do you feel like are you satisfied there? You like you are you can you put that summit to rest? Yes, I don't think I'm going to go back to try to climb Burkong. I. This has been difficult for me to deal with because I like to succeed. I like to accomplish my goals. And that was a big one for me to reach the summit of a mountain that was named after me. And it was important to me. But I think I realized over the last couple of years as I've attempted to climb it four times that it may be at my age just a little bit too much. And I think I may need to realize that... Mm. It's going to take a super accomplished mountaineer like Noel and these Sherpas to reach the top. As I looked at the footage, and we have some amazing, beautiful footage that was taken by Noel. He had two GoPro cameras on his shoulder, each shoulder, and videoed the whole trip up that headwall to the summit. And it's just stunning. I, I hope people will take the time to look at it to realize what these mountains are like. And as I look at that footage now, after coming back, I realize, I'm, you know, it just may be a little too much for me, and I need to come to terms with that. So I'm not going to never say never, but I think it's highly unlikely that I'll go back. I wanted to get a team on top of that mountain with people that I knew and I respected. That was really important to me. I was hoping I'd be one of the members of the team that reached the summit, but if it wasn't me, I wanted it to be a Sherpa or a teammate. Yeah, And that goal was accomplished, and I'm happy with that. And I'm, I may need to just be satisfied with that. Another interesting little tidbit about that is we were under a little bit of pressure last October with our climb because there was a French climber that had announced he was going to attempt it after us. And this guy is a famous alpine solo climber. And I have no doubt he would have reached the top. Okay. And he wasn't threatening us. He didn't say, I'm going to try to get there ahead of you. Yeah. He just He just he let it be known bless his heart, that he was going to give us a chance, but if we didn't make it, he was going to. Yeah. And uh, so there's a little bit of pressure to succeed from that, and we did succeed, and yeah. I'm happy. I'm I'm happy and content with what we did on Burkong, and I'm glad that it was done by people that I love and respect. Yeah. Let's talk about future Bill. So there's, and this plays into... Maybe uh, maybe we talk a little bit about um, Ollie and and what your plans are with him and and if there's some some goal setting there and some future mountain mm-hmm. climbs and some sounds like some more adventures are in store. But give us a sense of future Bill. I'm at the point now where I have to think about what I do next, and I have a lot of things on my bucket list, Ryan. I I can't even begin to count the number of things on my bucket list. I'm 76 years old. I don't know how much time I have left, but I'm going to live it to the fullest, whatever that time may be. And so I'm planning my next adventures, and I'll share them with you here today. I have a disabled grandson. He turns 18 in June, severely disabled. 
and his name is Oliver. We call him Ollie. And he and I have the closest bond that human beings could possibly have. I've been very involved in his life and his care since he was born. Keep in mind, I have four children, 14 grandchildren. I've been married uh, to Sharon, my wife, for 55 years. So I love my family beyond belief. But Ollie is kind of special to me because he is disabled. He has a lot of needs. And so I've been very involved in his care. And he inspires me. We train together. I pull him, as I mentioned earlier, in a trailer behind my bike. So he's my training partner. And he inspires me to reach my goals, to do my best, to accomplish the impossible, just like he does every day. He climbs his own Mount Everest every day of his life, given his disability. And so he's a big inspiration to me. So... Right now, I have some filmmakers in California who have expressed interest in doing a film about my life with Ollie and all the things that we've done together as a team. And it will be a feature-length film that will either be uh, for television or for broad national and international distribution. It's going to feature my life with Ollie, setting goals, doing your best to accomplish those goals, helping others do the same. And that's going to be the theme of the film. And I hope it will inspire people to do that and to help others do that, especially people in the special needs community. And we're going to use the mountaineering I've done, all the mountains I've climbed around the world, as sort of a metaphor. We're going to use those in the film, but they're going to be a metaphor for overcoming overcoming physical challenges. In my case, age, and Ollie's case is disability. So that's going on. I just had a meeting yesterday with one of the filmmakers, and we're going to see how that works out. The other project I have is a book project. So I've got a literary agent and a really famous writer who are interested in writing a book that has the same basic theme, uh, Ollie and me and the mountains as a, as a metaphor. So I'm really excited about those two projects. I also had a sidecar about eight years ago. I had a sidecar added to my motorcycle. I have a Harley Davidson Road King Classic that my wife bought me in 2008. And a few years ago, I added a sidecar to it so I could ride with Ollie. And on the sidecar, I have the words Papa and Ollie. They, my yeah. grandkids call me Papa. And so I take Ollie around on these trips, local trips. And he loves the sidecar. He just loves it. Yeah. So my plan this summer, and we're going to see if I can make it work, but I'm working on it right now, is to do a 3,675-mile road trip, just Ollie and me, He'll be in the sidecar. Yeah. A motorcycle road trip to visit dozens of national parks, national forests, uh, preserves. And I want to give him the chance to see the beauty and grandeur of our country up close. And I hope to bring a film team along to film it, and we'll probably add that to the movie. So that's that's my next big adventure this summer, and I'm really excited about it. And it's going to be like climbing Everest. It's a big unknown. I have no idea how it's going to how it's going to work, how he's going to handle it, how I'm going to handle it. Um, And in that respect, it's very similar to my first attempt to climb Mount Everest. Every day will be a challenge. Every day will be an adventure, and it's going to be really fun to see how it works out. Yeah, that's that's a beautiful endeavor for sure. Are there any future aspirations... I feel like you gave me a little nod earlier of some climbing that might still be in there. Yeah, I have to be a little careful about how I answer that question (laughs) in case my family is listening. (laughs) Sorry about that. By the way, uh, I can tell you that uh, 
my family has not been thrilled with these alpine climbs, especially the last few, and because they worry about me. And so I would say every member of my family would rather I not be doing this, but yeah. they let me do it because it's it's a passion that I have, and I think I've earned their trust in, in the way that I've climbed in the past and the turnarounds that I've done. So, um, but... As I mentioned earlier, the oldest person to climb Mount Everest is a Japanese individual who climbed it at the age of 80. He's much older than that now. So he's the oldest person in the world. I'm the oldest person living outside of Asia. And I'm the fourth oldest person in the world to climb Everest, but he's the oldest. So I'm 76. In four years, I'll turn 80. And... All I'll say is that I think it would be really nice if an American held that record, even mm-hmm. if it's just for a short period of time. So we're going to see how I feel four years from now. And I, I'm not announcing anything. I'm just yeah. telling you it's sort of rolling around in my mind that maybe I might try that. We'll have to see. I mean, how I, I, feel I think, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I I just get goosebumps when I think about what you just had covered and even what your future plans are. And I think about my own life. I don't know everyone's their own. It's it's their own. Everyone's in their own, traveling in their own lane. But I just, I hear you and I just go, I'm not doing enough. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> well, I feel I like I am. And then I, and then I hear you and I go, I'm not doing enough. And I think that that's just a, you just serve as, as a beautiful uh, inspiration uh, to us all, really. I mean, to really put age in perspective and say, you know, you're talking about making plans, perhaps, quote unquote, at 80, hypothetically, um, about doing one of the hardest things known to mankind. And that's just a wonderful and remarkable thing. Well, I, I hope that what I've done after retirement, especially for people that might be in my situation, retiring, trying to think, what does that mean? What am I going to do now? Uh, I'm, I'm just hopeful that maybe they will take my experience and what I've done and reach beyond their own grasp and set big goals for themselves. Yeah. Don't assume that it's not possible because you can accomplish almost anything in life if you set your mind to it and you and you have that kind of mental commitment we talked about earlier. And so, and I try to emphasize that, Ryan, in the talks that I give. I love talking to, I give a lot of speeches, a lot of programs. I don't charge because I don't believe in that. I don't charge. I, I love talking about the mountains. But I especially love the talks I give to children because I give a lot of programs for school children. Yeah. All ages, high school, grade school. And so on that note, if someone wants to get a hold of you for uh, whether it's a corporate speaking gig or an elementary school, um, how how would they – can they get in touch with you through the website? Is that the best way? The website has my email, which is edxceo at aol.com. I don't mind giving that out. And people that might be interested in my giving a program uh, should contact me through that email address. It's on my website, but it's edxceo at aol. And that's how to reach me. And 
assuming I can work it into my schedule, which I'm sure I can. I've never turned down a program. I've never turned down anybody that has called me and said, I'd like to talk to you about some things that I'd like to do. Could I meet you for lunch? I feel like I want to share this experience. And going back to the school kids I mentioned earlier, Ryan, uh, when I talk to the school kids, I love that because the lesson I'm trying to teach them is not you should be a mountaineer, you should climb Mount Everest or... The lesson I'm trying to teach them is set big goals for yourself in your life. Uh, don't assume, whatever your personal situation may be, don't assume you can't do something you really want to do. Set big goals. Commit yourself to accomplish those goals. Learn from your mistakes. Believe in yourself. Listen to people that you trust and do everything you can to reach your own summit, whatever it might be. And that's the message that I, I want to get across with my own life experience. Well, you know, this has been a really great time spent with you today. Um, I'm literally a hundred times more inspired than when I walked in this room. Um, I I very much look forward to seeing the film and whatever manifestation that is. I know it's going to be a positive message and it's going to be wonderful. And certainly look forward to reading the book. And again, guys, I've spent some time, quite a bit of time, and I feel like I've just scratched the surface on Bill's site hsummits.com. Bill, thank you for coming in today. Honestly, serious pleasure for me. Maybe my favorite podcast I've recorded to date, um, subject matter and uh, human being that I'm, I'm with and company. It's just been wonderful. Well, that's very kind of you, Ryan. I really appreciate it. And for those who might be interested in following my trip this summer, assuming I put that together, which I think I will, or any future endeavor I may pursue, I have a blog on my website, and I send reports when I'm climbing and when I'm whatever adventure I'm involved in. I, I, I give regular reports on my blog. And if you register your email on my blog, then when I submit a report on the blog, you get a little alert, email alert, and you can read it if you're interested. And so if, if, you, may, if you have listeners who might be interested in following the trip this summer, we're going to blog it. And uh, it's been a real pleasure to sit here with you and talk to you. I appreciate it very much. What you're doing with your podcast is really wonderful because if if your speakers, the people that participate and sit here with you and talk with you and have this kind of discussion can be inspired to to make the best out of their life and especially to help others do the same, yeah. then you, you're doing a real, real service and I respect you for that. God bless you, Ryan. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. And you guys, um, if you like what you heard today, um, you can check it out on the website, uh, on iTunes. Brevity Code, the URL is brevitycode.com. And I'm uh, at Brevity Code Show on Instagram. As you've probably seen, I don't post much because I don't like to do it. But but I always talk about new shows and things that are coming on or future guests that are coming on. So thank you for listening. And we look forward to next time. Hey, guys, thank you for listening to another episode of The Brevity Code. This show is also brought to you by Town Park and Town Park Brewery. On April 26th, Town Park is going to be hosting their first of an ongoing series called Two Farm Tables and a Microphone. It's going to be located at their brewery, combining visionary ideas and unforgettable cuisine, all paired with the freshest Town Park beer. Guest speakers for April 26th is Dan Clark. You may remember him from American Gladiator as Nitro. And Dan Clark reminds us that we can choose to increase our happiness and live the life we deserve. Whether you're recovering from your own brush with death or you are simply looking to live a fuller, more balanced, rich, rewarding life.